Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Thanks to everyone who took the listener survey. I heard a lot of very kind words and also many uh, great suggestions. It really means a lot to me. And if you haven't taken the survey yet, please go to bioinformatics.chat slash survey and answer a few questions and I would appreciate that. Looking at the survey results gave me this idea. So unsurprisingly, many of you are scientists, researchers, and it might have happened to you that you thought, hey, my latest preprint or paper or software should be featured on the podcast. And the thing is, first, I may not be aware of your preprint or paper or software. And even if I am, uh, it's just not possible to interview everyone. But uh, I had this idea to host an occasional open mic episode. And this is where you would submit your audio clips. So you would record a, an audio clip, maybe five or 10 minutes long um, about your research or whatever you wanna share with the audience of this podcast and send it to me. And once I have a few of these clips, I would paste them together and release this as an extra episode of the podcast. So if you want to give this a try, please go to bioinformatics.chat slash open mic, O-P-E-N-M-I-C. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Today, I'm speaking to Amateur Rahman, who is a PhD student at Penn State. Hi, Amateur. Hi. And uh, Karel Brinda, who's a postdoc at Harvard Medical School. Hi, Karel. Hello. So normally when I have multiple guests, they are co-authors on the same paper or their colleagues. Uh, today is a very interesting situation where uh, Karel and uh, Amateur are from different universities and they didn't co-author a paper. Uh, but what they did in fact was they published in January within like several days uh, each, each of them is a first author on the preprint, <laughs> on two preprints that uh, introduce uh, pretty much the same concept from uh, somewhat different angles. And uh, I thought this was a very interesting situation and I invited them both to, um, to discuss um, this new concept, which is called uh, Simplitics or uh, um, spectrum preserving string sets. Uh, so in different papers, uh, it's called differently. But that's what we'll be uh, talking about today. And uh, the idea of this concept of simplitics is to efficiently store k-mers, a large set of k-mers. And uh, I guess we'll start by um, recalling what k-mers are. And why do we care about them? Why do we need to, to store large sets of them? So k-mers are substrings of a fixed length of, a, of strings in a given genomic data set. And they are super important in computational biology because they are used for many different tasks. Uh, on one hand, they can be, for instance, used for like genome assembly, uh, for instance, by programs like SPADE. On the other hand, they can be used also for rapid estimates of distances between genomic data sets. And this is very often used, for instance, in metagenomic classification. Cambers are also very often used in like variant calling in programs like Kevlar or in database search uh, in programs like Bixi, for instance, or in infectious disease diagnostics, uh, like for instance, RACE. This leads us to the question, how to represent cameras efficiently? So what is our problem, typical, or let's say typical setting? So we have a big genomic data set, which can be, for instance, a set of reads from a sequencing experiment or a genome assembly or a set of genome assemblies or uh, reads from a metagenomic experiment. And we are, interesting, we are interested in the question, how to store the cameras and at the same time, how to ask, for instance, which cameras are in there. So for instance, we have a given, uh, we have one specific camera and we are asking, is this camera inside? Yes or no? So the core idea here is that 
these are not random sets of k-mers, random sets of these fixed length strings, but these are all substrings of the of the fixed length k, all substrings of some larger string, right? And therefore, there's a lot of redundancy there because if you consider two consecutive k-mers, the the second k-mer only has like one extra letter compared to the to the first one as uh, so it's one extra sort of uh, unit of information uh, in the case of the DNA it's uh, extra two bits of information but if you store the whole k-mer you're storing two times k bits of information and so we want to avoid that redundancy right so uh, how uh, how would you approach uh, the, the problem of uh, storing uh, these sets of k-mers efficiently? So the first important thing to realize is how the sequencing process work. So we have some linear molecules under sequencing. It can be DNA, it can be RNA. And from the sequencing machine, we are getting uh, a set of reads where the reads are substrings of the molecules, basically of the, of, for instance, of the genomes. Uh, and sometimes they, they can uh, contain some sequencing errors. The nature of the process basically tell us, tells us that most of the chemers will belong to certain very long strings. Plus, there might be some chemers which correspond to the sequencing errors. And exactly as you mentioned, uh, most of the chemers, many of the chemers will be very largely overlapping. So very often we will see that two chemers have overlap k minus one, and we can really use make use of this redundancy. So we were thinking in our work when we work on metagenomic classification about how to store large chamber sets in a very efficient way. And we started to play with basically leveraging the overlaps. So going basically from the full set of all chambers, which can be either in some assembly or in some uh, set of reads. And we started to merge the chambers one with each other whenever there was k minus one long overlap. And uh, we find out that this is a very efficient representation. So this is how our research started. And that is what you call simplitics, right? Yes, this is what we nowadays call simplitic, simplitics. And so there are sort of two different ways to, to look at simplitics. So far, we'll, we'll introduce more different ways uh, later. But so far, uh, on the one hand, this is a natural operation to perform if you want to assemble the original linear molecule. In that case, if, if you're actually interested in what the original molecule was, uh, you're concerned whether you're reconstructing the right linear structure, because there can be uh, different linear structures that give rise to the same uh, sets of k-mers. Uh, but what you're, you're saying here is that if we don't care whether that was the right uh, that was the original, true original linear structure. Um, this is just a, an efficient way to store k-mers because we, we essentially assemble them into a long linear sequence. And then if we want to get the original k-mers, we split it back into different k-mers, right? Uh, yes, that's completely true. So when we are just interested in the presence or absence of k-mers, uh, the strings which we are building don't have to correspond to the original molecules under sequencing. It's rather a mean, basically, for compression for us. And it's very useful to introduce the concept of De Bruyne graphs uh, to think about uh, these things. So De Bruyne graph in the node-centric definition is a graph where the k-mers are, the, are the vertices of the graph plus there is some additional information about the overlaps in the edges. So one camer is connected with another camer if and only if they share k minus one long overlap. And these camers versus De Bruyne graphs, uh, this pair basically gives us very nice duality. So on one hand, we can think about it just as about a camera set, on the other hand, we can go from the camera set to the De Bruyne graph if we consider also the overlap information. Then we can think about uh, the simplitics in terms of paths in this De Bruyne graph. In the assembly applications, people typically look for paths 
which are somehow uniquely determined, or where they can be sure that uh, they correspond to the original molecules. Whereas, since we are interested in the compression, we are basically trying to find arbitrary paths long enough so that they can capture as many cameras at the same time. And we basically want to minimize the number of such paths. Yeah, and to make this clear, the reason you want to minimize the number of this path, and I guess we'll we'll return to this a bit later, but the fewer paths you have, the more sharing there is among the cameras, right? And so the fewer bytes you need to store. So, uh, you know, what one might think that uh, what we really care is about the storage requirements, so how many bytes we need to spend to store this information. But in fact, I think there's a like a simple linear relationship between the number of um, paths and uh, the number of bytes. Is, is this right? Yes, it is right. In the best imaginary case, we would be able to basically come up with one path where every node would be visited exactly once. But for most of genomic data sets, this is not possible. But it gives us an interesting lower bound, so we always know that we cannot be better than such an uh, imaginary path. Uh, whenever it happens that we basically come to the end and cannot extend anymore and start with a new path, it's, it brings us some additional overhead, let's say, into our data. Because uh, we have to basically like end the path, start once again, and we will use k minus 1 bytes in addition, or characters, let's say. And so you arrived at this problem via metagenomics, right? So you were, you were considering what's the most efficient way to store uh, the large metagenomic data sets. And uh, Amateur, you arrived sort of at the same uh, problem, but from, from a different perspective. So can you, can you describe uh, how you became interested in, in this uh, problem? Yeah, so uh, for that, I think I need to explain Unitics first. So uh, I was at first uh, looking at Unitic-based tools. So um, like we've already discussed what De Bruyne graphs is, so that makes it easier for me to explain Unitics. So this is like if you uh, keep merging a K-Mars along non-branching paths as far as you can, then you get uh, Unitic. So, for example, like uh, in De Bruyne graphs, two consecutive k-mars have overlap, so you can merge them to compact the number of characters. So, if you keep doing that until you hit a node which has like a multiple outgoing path, so then because it adds an ambiguity, we stop there. So that's that's how you get a unitic. So, if you uh, like find all possible unitics uh, in in the De Bruyne graph, then that gives you like that gives you very interest that that that's a very interesting thing. Uh, so you get a compacted De Bruyne graph this way. So the thing is, Unity is basically uh, used for assembly purpose. I mean, the main reason Unity came, um, uh, the Unity based tools appeared was because it helps you to speed up the assembly process. But our goal is not the as assembly here, we want to uh, efficiently store the K-Mars. So we noticed that Unitics are very useful for storing K-Mars um, because it has some special uh, characteristics. They contain the same K-Mars as the original K-Mars set in the De Bruyne graph and only contain them once. So we noticed this property and uh, realized that this is necessary for like losslessly uh, storing set of gamers oh, and we gave this property the name uh, spectrum preserving string set can you define what spectrum means in this context so the the spectrum would be like if you consider a set of unitics and the set of gamers of the original de Bruyne graph you'll see that uh, they can you can find the same gamers in both of these sets and you'll find each gamer appear exactly once in both of this set. So that's the spectrum. Right, so, so the spectrum is, is like the set of all k-mers, right? Yeah, the, the spectrum is like the um, property of the k-mers appearing once 
in both of these sets. That's the spectrum. And we are preserving the spectrum in both of these sets. That's why we call them spectrum-preserving string sets. Both of these sets, I mean the original Klamer set and the set of unities, both of them are like, uh, they are equivalent in terms of their spectrum. So that's the property that we notice that actually helps us to losslessly represent the set of gamers. And then we realize that the unitics are great uh, in this way, but you can definitely do better than that. If you reduce the number of paths in the De Bruyne graph, then you get better results, like you save more characters. So that's why we're interested in a spectrum preserving string set, which has like less number of strings. You can do better than Unitix in that in that aspect. For example, in Unitix, whenever we see a KMR which has a, like multiple outgoing path, we stop there. We stop merging there. But what if we didn't stop there? What if we kept following the branching path? Like let's say KMR has uh, three outgoing paths, and then we arbitrarily choose one of them, and we keep uh, extending through towards that path. So we realize, like we found out that if we uh, like keep on doing this, if we keep on merging in this way, we get a better spectrum preserving string set with less number of strings and less number of characters. So this uh, serves our purpose of uh, lossless storage of gamers. Grell mentioned that there is a like a natural lower bound on the number of simplitics, which is one, and that sort of gives rise to the natural lower bound on uh, on the storage requirement uh, of, of a Kmer set, right? But in your preprint, you improved on that lower bound. So can you can you talk about that? And, and maybe start with like why why do we need a lower bound in the first place or a good lower bound? So our method of like uh, extending the gamers as far as we can, it's like, like I said, it was arbitrarily chosen. Like when I had multiple paths, I picked any one of them. So it was not an ex exact method. It's a greedy method of uh, forming spectrum preserving string sets. So it's not optimal, we know. But uh, we wanted to see, like, even if it's not optimal, I mean, how worse is it from the optimal result? So that's why we we were interested in a lower bound. So at first we uh, started with a very naive or simple lower bound, which so the simplest possible lower bound could be the uh, number of gamers. So uh, you at least need to have at least uh, that that many strings, right? So if you have like ten gamers, you need at least ten strings. So that's one of the bound, but we want but that's not a lower bound, is it? It's more like an upper bound. Sorry, that that that's the upper bound. Yeah, that's like an upper bound, and the lower bound would be the uh, one like you cannot do better than one string. So, but that would also happen when we had one path going through all the cameras. So then uh, we can merge all of the cameras together into one string. So that would be the best possible uh, result. So that's the lower bound. So one, and the upper bound would be the number of gamers. So, but uh, one doesn't give you actually, I mean, doesn't uh, help you to compare your uh, algorithm. Yeah, so that's why we wanted to improve on the lower bound. For that, we uh, looked at the topology of the De Bruyne graph. So in every data set, the topology of the De Bruyne graph is different. It's also different for different K. So we made a method to calculate a lower bound for every uh, for every different uh, De Bruyne graphs. So for example, a, a De Bruyne graphs are what? They are sets of k-mers. Uh, uh, the nodes are k-mers and we have edges if those k-mers have overlap between them. So what if the, in our De Bruyne graph, there is no edge? Uh, if the, what, if the, what if we have some k-mers which are isolated? They have no outgoing edge or no incoming edge. So in that case, that uh, particular gamer has to be a single string in our set. So that's uh, one way we improve on the lower bound. Another way you can improve the lower bound is you notice that there are some uh, nodes uh, which have no incoming edge. 
So if a node has no incoming edge, but only outgoing edge, so you know that uh, your uh, string has to start from uh, that kmar or that node. So this also tells you that you have to add this to the number of strings that you are calculating. The same goes from for uh, nodes with no outgoing edge. So these are the observations that uh, led to a little uh, bit more complicated models of calculating lower bound that, um, I mean, helped us to compare our results. And we found that, uh, like, if we run our algorithm in uh, sequencing these data sets with K31, we found that uh, our gap with this lower bound was only 2 to 3%. So this is very interesting because the problem is potentially NP-hard, like the problem that we're dealing dealing with, uh, the problem of finding the optimal uh, spectrum-preserving string set. But uh, for that, for such a problem, we found a greedy heuristic that only has 2 to 3% gap. So that's why uh, the lower bound was important for us. This is a potentially an NP-hard <laughs> problem, right? So you, you don't have a proof, but I think... So we're working on it right now, but uh, but in general, like for general graphs, this is NP-hard problem, but we don't know because this is a, sp a special type of graph, De Bruyne graphs. Uh, it's not proven yet, but we're working on it right now to show if it's NP-hard or not. Uh, uh, that's why you say potentially NP-hard. Right, and, and can, can you also clarify uh, for, for the listeners who don't know, uh, what what does NP-hard mean? So this is like, a, this is computationally very hard to solve exactly. I, I don't want to like uh, give a tech technical explanation here. So it's going to take a very long time if you want to, uh, for larger inputs to compute the spectrum preserving string sets. So that's what I mean by NPR here. All right. So um, I guess you both uh, made your independent implementations of the algorithm to compute the simplitics or spectrum preserving string sets. So Karel, can, can you talk about your implementation? Our implementation is very simple. So at the beginning, we load all of the cameras into memory and then we repeat the following process. We take a random camera and then we start to extend it to one direction as long as it is possible. So we find a camera which has a K minus one long overlap and basically merge it with our current string, with our current simplitic, which we are right now constructing. And whenever we add a new camera like that, we remove it from the set. And we continue as long as this is possible. And when it's not possible, which means that there is no camera which would have such an overlap, we look to the, to the left side of the simplitic and extend as long as possible to the left side. When there is no longer possible to extend to the left side, we print a new simplitic and we start the process again. And we repeat this until we get all the simplitics. So it is a very simple greedy heuristic. Right, and, and just just to remind our listeners, this is all happening in the context of a De Bruyne graph. So, so you already have this sort of relationship ready, right? You, you don't have to every time like to search all the k-mers for overlaps because that's the point of a De Bruyne graph. It contains the same information, but it provides this extra structure that you can traverse when, uh, when building the simplitics. In fact, we store in memory just the cameras as a set without, without the information about the overlaps. But we don't need that actually, because for each of uh, the cameras, we basically can remove the first character and then just test uh, whether the string plus A, plus C, plus G, uh, plus D is present there or not. So in fact, on the technical level, we are working just with a camera set, but on the philosophical level, it corresponds to basically looking for paths into the Bruin graph. So, so you exploit the fact that there are just four letters in the DNA alphabet, exactly. right? Because if, if the alphabet was larger, that would be less efficient. Yes, that's right. Anything else you wanted to, to say about your implementation? I would say that one of the big advantages of this approach is that it can be super easily implemented basically anywhere. 
you can write this code in Python, for instance, on just several lines. So from this reason, we believe that this heuristic is very easily pluggable into basically any software and can be used for like serialization of Kamer sets and De Bruyne graphs. And uh, Amateur, what about your implementation? Did you do it similarly or are there any interesting differences? It's almost similar, but uh, our starting point was uh, like a compacted De Bruyne graph as opposed to a De Bruyne graph. So a compacted De Bruyne graph is composed of uh, like where the nodes are unitics as opposed to being gamers. So I think that's pretty much the basic difference. We start with a compacted De Bruyne graph and then we uh, pick a node which is a unitic and we try to extend it in both directions and we keep extending as long as we can and that that way i get one string and then uh, we randomly pick another unitic and repeat the process so i mean uh, both processes are equivalent it's just if you skip the uh, computation of um, compacted de Bruyne graph and then you get the method that carl described and so your method allows to store these large Kamer sets very efficiently, right, by merging them into simplitics. Um, and so if you, want to if, if you want to make use of that information, you could always uncompress, you could extract all the Kamers from the simplitics. Um, but uh, that may be not the most efficient way, right? So ideally, we would like to query this compact representation without extracting it. You both sort of investigated how to efficiently query this compact representation. Uh, and uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you both converged on the FM index. Uh, so Karel, maybe you could... Um, talk about your approach and uh, maybe let's start with introducing what an FM index is. The FM index is a compact data structure used for full text search. So it allows to take basically any string over a given alphabet and build an index on top of it and very efficiently query it for substrings, which is very good for us because in our case, our string are basically merged simplitics, and then we are interested in which cameras are present there or not. So this is our query. And the very important thing here is that FM indexes have been very largely used in the context of read mapping. And now there are many very efficient implementations, for instance, BWA or Bowtie and other read mappers. So we can basically combine the simplitic representation with any of these read mappers more specifically with their indexes. And we can use them for querying the cameras. And uh, how, how do you apply that concept to, uh, to, the, to the compact representation? So it's applied in the following way. So we basically take a genomic data set. We calculate the simplitics. We store the simplitics in one FASTA file then we can build an FM index over this FASTA file, and then we can query the obtained FM index using standard standard Bruce-Buehler transform search. Uh, maybe this is an important thing to mention, what FM index actually is. It is basically the Bruce-Buehler transform of the string plus some additional tables. Right, so does it matter for your implementation then that this is like an, an actual FM index, or would it similarly work with any other way of uh, indexing like a genome? It could work with any full text indexes. So it could be combined also, for instance, with a suffix array or with a suffix tree. Uh, the reason why we are using FM indexes is that they, in practice, provide the best performance. In Amateur, you, you, also, you also investigated the use of an FM index uh, applied to the spectrum preserving string sets. So um, how did you approach that? It's the same method. Like you first build a spectrum preserving string sets from a sequencing data set. 
and then it's uh, stored in a faster file and on top of that faster file you run an uh, fm index builder tool that uh, gives you a structure from which you can uh, do query of cameras very fast you know so um, it's like it takes less than a second for uh, querying each cameras so that's uh, but uh, f so some we can uh, note something here like it's not only FM index like you can use any other index like you can use um, hash function hash based index here on top of the text but uh, like it's very flexible it, you don't only have to use FM index here but because we, but uh, because we were actually interested in lower memory and lower uh, fast query, that's why we decided to try FM index, and it also allowed us to like compare against uh, uh, like how uh, better does computing simplitics or SPS uh, spectrum preserving string set uh, is as compared to uh, doing FM index on top of Unitix, right? So. Uh, that's why we uh, chose like uh, chose the FM index route for building the uh, membership query index, and uh, because uh, the uh, size of the structure depends on the length of the string, uh, making it spectrum preserving strings that improved the performance of uh, uh, the size of the index. So spectrum preserving string sets are a compressed representation of the original camera set, but uh, it, it would also be possible to, to further compress it, right, Amateur? And, and this is something you, you looked into? Right. So there exists special purpose uh, compressor tools which work uh, on, which are uh, designed specially for FASTA files. And they have much higher compression ratio for uh, fast uh, fast queue files. So we applied one of those uh, compressor tool on the output of uh, SimpliDix or spectrum preserving string set to store the uh, set of cameras in more space efficient way. If we use spectrum preserving string sets, we improve the space usage by 10 to 28 percent compared to just storing uh, the Unitix with compression. Garel, at the beginning, you mentioned many areas in which K-MERS are used nowadays, right? And uh, how do you envision applying Simplitix in, in those areas? We envision Simplitix to be used as a generic method for serialization of the K-MERS sets on one hand, and as a very useful method for representing De Bruyne graphs for all the applications which are mentioned at the beginning with the exception of genome assembly. So for instance, in metagenomic classification, in for instance, genotyping and other applications. One of the very important features of the simplistic representation is, and I would like really to emphasize this, uh, is that it really follows the Unix philosophy of small tools which be which can be connected and combined together. Uh, Simplitix are very easily computable out of a camera set on one hand, and on the other hand, since the output is just a FASTA file, it's very easy to combine them with different full-text indexes, with standard Unix tools, for instance, like Grab or Perl and other tools. So. We believe that uh, it's very well designed, basically isolated block, which can, which can fit within standard bioinformatic pipelines. You both did an experimental evaluation of uh, of your tools. You took slightly different approaches to it because your interests were perhaps a little bit different. Can you talk about like which approach each of you took and and sort of compare them? So in our case, we were very interested in the scaling. So the first question which we were asking was, how do both of the representations, I mean the simplistic representation on one hand and the traditional unitic representation on the other hand, how do they perform when we are increasing the K, when we are changing the camera size? 
The reason why we were interested in this is that different practical applications call for different camera sizes. So for instance, for people who work with nanopore sequencing, which has a huge amount of errors, people typically use small K. Whereas when people work with data which come from Illumina sequencing, people can afford a larger case. So there was this natural question, like whether the representations behave always the same or whether they are different. And the results surprised us a lot. Uh, at the beginning, when we started with like very small case, uh, what was happening basically was that uh, the number of cameras was growing ex exponentially, which is, uh, which is very natural because when you have K cameras of length, for instance, two, you can be sure that all the cameras will be in the data set, also for uh, the length three and so on. So for a small case, basically the De Bruyne graphs are, let's say, saturated or they are almost complete, which means that the unitic representation will be much worse than the simplitic because basically every camera will be branching. Uh, what we observed is that for every species or for every model organism which we were working with, there is a certain point where the difference is maximal. And this point is typically logarithm of fourth uh, of the length of the genome. And then the difference in the performance between simplitics and unitics goes down. And for much longer cameras, uh, they perform similarly well. So for instance, in bacteria, this happens already for like k equal to 18. So simplitics and unitics will perform comparably well for a camera uh, of length 18. Whereas for instance, for humans, uh, even with camera uh, of length, cameras of length 31, there still is a big difference between simplitics and unitics. The other question which we were asking is, how well does the representation scale when we add, uh, when we consider pangenomes? In our case, we were interested in bacterial pangenomes, which means we were basically taking- Sorry, can you a, define what a pangenome is? So. There are many, many different ways how a pangenome uh, can be defined, and it slightly differs between biology and bioinformatics. And in this case, we are interested in so-called computational pangenomes. Uh, what we mean by that? By a computational pangenome, we, we typically mean a reference sequence plus all the within species variation. This is the, this leads us to the question basically, or it's very largely motivated by the question, how to efficiently or in general, how to represent all the variability which can appear uh, within a species. Uh, for instance, bacteria are very highly variable. So they are always challenging uh, as for the capturing all the variability. Uh, from the practical point of view, for instance, if you use a reference, uh, for instance, for E. coli, uh, which is too far from your strain which you are sequencing, all the methods you are using will be probably failing because uh, the many genomes won't be represented. So we were asking the question, when we are adding more and more variation, which means more and more gene content and more and more SNPs, for instance, how well does uh, the simplitic and unitic representation scale? And uh, what's the relative improvement of simplitics over unitics? And how we measured this? We basically took uh, data. We took assemblies first from studies where they studied systematically the populations of bacterial uh, of bacterial populations in certain geographical areas. We were looking at how do the unitic and simplitic representation compare when we include more and more of the individual strains of these bacterial species. And what we observe is the following. Uh, when there's just one genome included, we observed pretty high improvements in the number of sequences, but almost zero improvement or very low improvement uh, in the cumulative sequence length. However, when we were increasing the number of genomes included, uh, the improvement was better and better with more genomes included, up to approximately 1.5 in our specific experiment. So this basically means that more data we have, more variation we have within our pangenome the better simplitics are. Amateur, what about you? How did you approach experimental evaluation? Um, so 
for us, we kept the value of k fixed at a single value because our uh, a goal was to compare against different uh, tools uh, that does the same compression technique as us or no, member does the efficient membership query as uh, our method. So that's why what we wanted to do, we wanted to keep a fixed value of k and uh, compare uh, and uh, use different data sets instead in order to sh show that our method is uh, scales uh, well. So we use like a human genome data set and we use back bacterial data sets. And I mean, we took different type of data set to show that our method worked well across all of them. And in order to show that our method works for large data sets, we in we used a, a human genome data set where the number of gamers was uh, around 400 millions. So th that's what we did, but we never uh, changed the value of K to uh, compare like the like Carl did. Uh, so what we did was we compared against the tools that uh, use membership query that performs membership query in low memory and we compared their time and memory requirement against ours and showed that uh, how ours perform better in all uh, five different data sets that we use and um, we also showed the compression ratio of our method compared against other camera compression tools so if you want to store a set of cameras efficiently and then query it for membership. Um, one way to do that would be to run an algorithm, uh, one of the algorithms that are called Kamer counters. Um, and Amateur, I think you did a comparison uh, of your algorithm with Kamer counters. So maybe you could talk a little bit of what Kamer counters are and, and how your algorithm compared to that. What did you find? Right. So gamer counters will take a genomic data set and, uh, and from that it will count the uh, all different gamers and like it, it will output all different gamers and uh, their accounts. And they store it in a, a specialized file data structure so that you can retrieve the count in a very fast and efficient way. Um, so, and uh, this is very useful in uh, in all the um, bioinformatics analysis. You use the camera counter tools a lot, but um, and they're very widely studied. So that's why we were interested in comparing our um, output to the uh, output size of the camera counter tools. So basically, because in in their structure they have the gamers as well as their counts we also wanted to uh, in order to uh, give a fair comparison we also uh, had our uh, compressed set of gamers and we also had the counts of those gamers in a separate file and we compressed all of them and did a comparison against the size of this uh, two data structures, the data structures that the camera counter tools use and the data structure that our tools used. And we found that uh, our tools have a, like on order of magnitude uh, better disk uh, space usage. So the reason is that in camera counter tools, you have to pay the price uh, in space uh, uh, because you, you need that fast retrieval capability. But we don't do that. Our goal is simply uh, efficient compression. What do you think are the the future directions of this line of work? Are there any open questions around uh, Simplitix? I mean, you can definitely improve those, improve the algorithms. I think both of our work are, uh, I mean, our algorithms are very simple. Uh, for now and for example they're both single threaded but uh, we believe like both of them can be definitely uh, highly parallelizable and that would like speed up the process a lot and also like you can improve the memory footprint of the algorithms um, 
So, yeah, so these are uh, definitely something that we would like to work on. And another thing, like for our project, we use the uh, com uh, computation of Unitix as, as a first step. So, I mean, that's like a very um, computation intensive task. So maybe if we just avoid avoid uh, computing Unitix and uh, start with De Bruyne graphs, uh, I mean I'm I'm guessing that we could get um, the same thing done in a very less amount of time. So these are some of the open questions. Like it's these are basically the questions that how to improve the algorithms that we implemented. Um, and also, if we uh, another interesting question that we can look into is: Is it possible to compress the set of gamers even farther than um, uh, what we have? Like, what if we think of something other than uh, simply the extent spectrum preserving string sets and uh, reduce the disk space? That's something uh, that would be something interesting to work on. We sort of talked a lot about the the methods and the algorithms, right? But uh, there is an interesting sort of human situation here. I, I think a lot of scientists really dread um, being in, in your situation, uh, which is like being scooped. Uh, and I'm I'm really curious how how you reacted, sort of what went through your had when you when you realized that you know someone else was working on on the same problem and uh, i think look looking at the dates on the preprint amateur published her uh, preprint uh, like a couple of days or like four days earlier um so Carol, what, what was your reaction when you uh like how did you find out about this other preprint and uh, what were your feelings? So we found the other preprint on BioArchive and our first reaction was, wow, we have to get our preprint as soon as possible. <laughs> but we were, we were really <laughs> impressed because we both of us worked on basically the same thing, but from very different directions. And I very strongly believe that both of the papers are very complementary. We were really very impressed. Did you contact uh, anyone from from the other paper, like Amateur or or Paul Medvedev, about this prior to to like publishing the preprint, or uh, did did you just publish it and and then let them know? How did that happen? Yes, we we got our preprint out. So at that time, our preprint was very close to finishing, but it wasn't done yet. So we had to like very quickly finish it within like two days to get it out as soon as possible. And once it was out, we contacted also the other group and we uh, were talking about the presentations and stuff like that. And so, Amateur, what was your reaction when uh, when Corel uh, and his team published uh, their preprint? Yeah, so I, I think I got to know about it first when uh, I think Carol sent uh, an email to uh, uh, me and Paul Medvedev uh, stating about the about their work and that's when i first found out that it's like it's almost a similar work uh, yeah so yeah i was excited like it's exciting to see that uh someone else is also working in the same uh, idea as you but uh they came up with it, it the same problem in a slightly different way but it's the method is kind of similar so that was interesting. And uh, the way, I think, uh, the way Carol ap approached us, that was very, uh, that was something from which I learned that uh, he was very polite about it. Like, we have the same kind of uh, ideas. We, I, I think uh, Carol also met, my, uh, met Paul and discussed uh, about a similar idea of uh, greedily assembling um, uh, as greedily assembling KMRs. So I'm not sure about the uh, history behind it, but I think they did meet before. Uh, I mean, the other author of my paper and Carl, I think they had some discussions about the same topic before. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think Carl can say better about that. So at first I thought, what, what if I, I mean, did I do something wrong? 
did I copy someone else's work or but then I I, I realized that no it, it can happen that you can come up with the same idea in a different uh, from two different groups and it's not that uncommon <laughs> Krell anything you, you want to add? <laughs> I think I don't have much to add and I think it would be better to include uh, this part uh, in the podcast because of course there was like uh, like the different teams are always working on similar things in some sense uh, because basically the whole uh, field of bioinformatics is kind of synchronized or is uh, the speed is basically given by the development of sequencing technologies and different people do interact uh, mutually at conferences and at seminars and so on. So, f- of course, also different people arrive at same ideas at the same time. Uh, so sometimes it happens that the same things uh, basically appear independently in two papers. And I personally find it always exciting because it's very rare that both of the papers would be very, very same. You can always see that uh, the papers kind of reflect the personalities of the authors and uh, it reflects the way how they ap- approach the problem and everything. So I personally like it when something is ba- basically being co-published uh, or appears at the same time from two different groups. Do you envision uh, fr- from this point on collaborating on, on the algorithms or, or are you going to continue maintaining your own implementations and and sort of exploring your own ideas yeah there are uh, def- uh definitely some arenas where we can collaborate um like we can merge our ideas for example uh like i said we started uh, with compacted de bruyne graph whereas carl's uh, method started with the de bruyne graph and that seems like a better way to go in both in terms of uh Uh, like efficiency in memory so maybe we can uh, look into that and collaborate to make both of our tools better i personally can imagine that in the future we would come with a joint tool kind of like next next generation tool where we would combine our ideas and where we would provide much better engineered solutions because in both of the cases in both of the papers the programs which we provided are more like prototypes. So there is definitely a huge space for improvement and for, let's say, providing one master implementation that would be highly optimized for memory, for the speed, and for other things, and possibly parallelized. Awesome. Then uh, I guess we'll be waiting for your master implementation in the meantime. And uh, awesome work, guys. Um, Thank you. Amateur and uh, Karel, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) 